Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. PPD is like a whole different kind of hell. It is this, at least to me, it's just this endless nothing. Like I would have so much rather have preferred to have felt depression, to have felt anxiety, to have felt anything. This was just numb as far as you can see, as far as you can touch. And the only way to get a handle on it was kind of peel everything back. And I learned very quickly that the reason my PPD was so miserable is because of all the trauma that I had gone through. So I couldn't really manage my PPD until I started looking at the trauma. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. 
what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome to the podcast. Do you struggle with relaxing into just being you? Are you always putting yourself out there as this version of yourself that seems to please other people? If you answered yes, you need to find the link in the show notes to my latest blog post, How to Be Authentic. There's some really great info there on how to be you. My guest this week is Scardi Cook, author of a book called How I Learned to Love You. When Scardi and her newborn were in the hospital, Scardi looked over at this tiny new life and wondered, how can I call myself a mother if I can't even love my child? Scardi was suffering from severe postpartum depression. This child was a choice made out of love and yet Scardi's heart was completely and utterly empty. Scardi felt numb and as she looked for ways to heal, it soon became apparent that what Scardi had considered to be a fairly normal childhood had been many, many tiny endless traumas that were now threatening to overwhelm a nervous system struggling with complex trauma and postpartum depression whilst being mum to a newborn. Scardi is a beautiful writer and you should definitely get a copy of How I Learned to Love You. There is a link in the show notes to the book. You are going to love hearing everything Scardi shares today. It is real and raw and very relatable. Please join me now for Scardi's story. Scardi, thank you so much for joining me today. You are the author of an incredible book called How I Learned to Love You, which is your deeply honest account of your journey with severe postpartum depression after the birth of your child. It's your real and raw story of finding your way back to your child, and that is definitely going to resonate with a lot of people. Going back to that time four years ago, sitting in that hospital room with your newborn, can I ask you, what were you feeling in that moment? Oh, goodness. Well, first, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It has been a labor of love and many other emotions to get here. In the hospital room, I think I was just numb in a way I have really never been before. We were so thankful my child was fine the entire way through, but the experience of birth was fairly traumatic. He was just very happy to stay right where he was. And I went in on Thursday and he was born on a Sunday via emergency C-section after hours of pushing and every intervention they could throw at my cervix. And he was enormous and perfect and healthy. And I should have felt gratitude and relief and joy and all the things that they tell you you're going to feel. And I started motherhood by dissociating. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I think I just sort of stayed there for a good bit of the first few months. Yeah, absolutely. You, you described finding your heart empty at that moment in time, the pressure to be a parent, even though it's your choice. There's no doubt it's connected to your own past as a parentified child. Can you describe your memories of being a parentified child? What did that look like for you? Sure. Yeah, they they absolutely compounded one another. It felt very empowering to say, now I'm going to choose to be a parent. I have gone back and forth about being child-free most of my life because of what we're about to discuss. And it was it was a strange sort of heartbreak to not be able to partake in what is supposed to be this like primal experience of motherhood. My first memory actually is of being parentified. Um, my parents divorced when I was like three and a half ish or so, so quite young. And I have a memory of my father dropping me off me and my infant brother at the time dropping us off to go back to my mother's and he's in the foyer and sobbing and I'm hugging him and it's okay, daddy, it's going to be okay, daddy. And that has been sort of the theme of my life in a number of ways. My mom didn't require me to parent her very much. It was more parent your siblings, parent the other children that are in the house. Um, But my dad really relied on me for emotional regulation as his sense of safety. And, And then later on, my grandmother did as well, because she came to live with us shortly after I was married. She was injured and she came to live with us. And I very quickly became her primary caregiver. And she was a spry, quirky old thing, but I'd say due to malnutrition and other issues, she tended to act between like eight and 12. Like she was a tween for most of it. And so I was also responsible for helping her, you know, when she got scared or she got upset or she got nervous about something. So through most of my life, I've been telling at least one adult everything's going to be okay. And not, not many people were telling me that instead. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how does that feel as a child? Does it just become normal to be that person? Or do you feel like there's just this weight on you constantly? For a long time, it felt very normal. It actually felt truly, it it felt like, like something to be proud of. You know, my friend's we're just kids. And I was the special one, right? I was this emotionally mature, has it all together, completely organized, never unwavering. You know, I I was the confidant to adults, right? Like, and so since I wasn't getting a whole lot of healthy love or attention, it felt quite good to be the one telling all of these you know, in my eyes, big, important people, because that's what your caregivers are to you when you're little, you know, like everything's going to be okay and helping them solve problems and being the person that they came to with their scary things. It, I think, is part of the reason why it took so long to 
come to grips with the fact that I did not have a good childhood because, you know, I wasn't abused in the traditional sense that in line with some of the other people that you've had on in the past. And because it didn't come in the form of some of those really big, really scary, really awful things, the idea of just like, I was asked to be an adult before I was an adult didn't really feel problematic until I had been out of it for quite a while. And until I was a mom myself and realized this is not anything that I would ever ask my child to do. Mm. Yeah. But you describe your mom as abusive. How did that abuse play out? She was neglectful in a way that sort of built upon itself and kind of came to a head as a teenager. She would, she suffered, I'm I'm sure she still does, suffered from a pretty crippling depression. And she would just sort of disappear, both physically and also just mentally. I'm sure she dissociates now that I understand a little better. At the time when I was younger, she ran an in-home daycare And I was the eldest of everybody, biological kids and daycare kids as well. And I would just sort of be responsible for folks. And there wasn't a lot of check-in at all. I was just sort of, it it was just assumed I was okay. And her husband, my stepfather, was frankly a piece of shit. And as so many women feel they're compelled to do, my mom towed his line quite nicely. And he wasn't too terrible to me, but he was pretty terrible to both of my brothers. And so being forced to watch the nothing and being forced to not step in on their behalf was just quite insidious. I did reach out to her a few times while I was still living there. I did try to convey, like, I am not well. I am not happy here. She did take me to therapy once, and it was the traditional, the kid sits quietly, and the mom says everything is okay, and I don't know why we're here, but we're here. And, you know, that just sort of drove me to be a bit more silent. And then when I did finally have a nervous breakdown when I was 15 that was met with derision. I was, I, I, let's use the word problematic. I was problematic for needing time and space to not go completely insane. Looking back, I probably should have been institutionalized for just a little bit because I really, there, there are chunks of time I just have no memory of, but it was always her needs first and and after the fact, we've tried to reconnect a few times, and that's where it's always stuck. Her needs have to come first with no consideration for my mental health. Yeah, well, there's so many things there, isn't there? But just just imagining you sitting with a therapist and your mother, you wonder what's going on in the therapist's mind. Is this how we get the best outcomes for people by having a child sit with a parent and, and hearing what they've got to say about it? I mean, it's just, I'm hoping that this is something we don't do as much now, but who knows if this is still how things go. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, I don't know at all. I I know 
you know, now that I have a child, I know that sometimes when you have really little kids, you go in, you know, if you Mm. have like a six-year-old or a a four-year-old who's having problems, you go in, but, but not at, I was 13, 14. So yeah, it it wasn't super productive for anybody. Mm. I'm not, I'm not sure what the therapist was thinking there. Mm. I never went back. So I, I couldn't ask. Yeah. And so your stepfather was abusive physically or was it? He was, he would have preferred to have been. He, he hit my youngest of my youngest brother a few times when he was very small. And my, it was the one time my mom really got in his face. So he was more fear-based, very verbally abusive, had no patience for the middle brother, constantly accused him of being cognitively impaired or developmentally impaired, financially abusive to me and to both brothers, regularly stole from me so that I couldn't make plans to get out from when I got older. And and he, he was just incredibly actively unkind. He was the guy who would roll all the windows up in the van and then smoke a pack of cigarettes, completely ignoring the children who were like coughing in the back, not wanting to roll the windows down because that wastes gas. When I was 15, I was gifted a, a kitten and it was a very big deal. I wanted one for a very long time. And I really, I, I very much imprinted on this cat, like, like a child, like my first I mean, you're 14, you know, you're 15, it's, it's your baby. And he, out of thin air, developed an allergy. And I was forced to give the cat away within 72 hours or so of having it. And it was just because he didn't want a cat in the house. So he was, he was just profoundly unkind, is just cruel, cruel for mm. cruelty. Yeah, cruel. And... I mean, it's it's one thing to have to deal with a person. It's like not even your father. I mean, it's not that that, you know, it, it shouldn't sure. really make a difference. But you've got this person in your house, not your father, who's just cruel, but you've also got a mother who's on his side. It's a very, very difficult place to be, isn't it? It is. And again, I was... I I don't want to discount my privilege or my fortune. Like, again, I was never hit. I always had a roof over my head. There was always, for the most part, food in the house. You know, there there were a lot of basics that I know a lot of people dealing with terrible parents don't have access to. And I, mm-hmm. I don't want to gloss over that. But at the same time, they were both really unhappy people. And for whatever reason, they decided to be unhappy together. I understand what happened with my mom and my dad. And we always, we joked with both of them that them getting divorced was the best thing they could have ever done for themselves and for one another. They were truly terrible together, but my mom and stepfather were also not great together, but for whatever reason, he was the one she would stick it out with. I I truly don't know why it's not something that I've been able to ever ask her. And he, he died shortly after I left. So that whole dynamic, you know, like has evaporated since then. Yeah. And in amongst all of this, you're dealing with a lot of 
things going on. Was there any body that was like a safe person or a safe space? Yes. My grandmother, my dad's mom was the only adult who loved me the way an adult should. My mother's father, my grandfather, I thought he was a safe space. But when I had to leave my mother's house, he turned into a flying monkey very quickly and became her largest proponent. And I nearly had to have a restraining order filed against him. But my, but my, but my grandmother, she was just a light. She would tell you she was a terrible mother and she was, but she was a wonderful grandmother. And that's one of the things I think, I think that's one of the reasons why I stayed with my father for so long, because I could so very clearly see the progression, you know, like my, my great grandfather terrorized his children to the point that they slept in the woods. Then my grandmother, she made her children adults very early on and occasionally like hit them with kitchen implements and married an abusive person, but then divorced that person to try to stop the cycle for her kids. Right. So like, not great, terrible mother by a lot of metrics, but like the line did get pushed. And then my father never hit me, my brother a bit, never hit me. He was verbally abusive. He was financially abusive. He was emotionally abusive. But again, the line got pushed again. And I I think that is part of what made it so difficult. And seeing her progression from this mom who had no resources and was not great to a grandmother who was on a steady fixed income and had a chance to breathe and was being finally left alone to her own devices. You know, like she had the space to love in a way that hadn't been granted to her when she was just a parent. And I, I actually stayed with her off and on, not very long, you know, like a weekend here, a week there, just because she was the only one who truly didn't give a shit what I did or where I went or how I did it. She just wanted me to be safe and happy, which isn't something that I got from any other adult in my life. Yeah. And and it is important to look at exactly what you've just described, all of those generational links, having a, was it your great grandfather whose children were too scared to sleep in the house? And it takes generations to change these things. And each one was doing something, but but obviously without the resources that we have today or the right. information that we have today, how did how did the trauma that you're experiencing start showing up for you when you're a younger person? Well, biggest part was, so I, I had anxiety, generalized anxiety for most of my life. I, I don't remember not having it. Um, I don't remember not having phobias. They're pretty well treated now, thankfully, um, but they showed up very early. Panic attacks showed up very early, like elementary school early. And then when I was 15, I, it was the strangest experience. I went with a bunch of friends to see the exorcist because it was playing for Halloween. And I just had a complete out of body experience during the movie. I went into the movie, a relatively sane person, and I left the movie 
completely outside of myself, completely unable to sleep and hallucinating. I just had a complete utter breakdown. And I remember the image that kicked it off, which was the main character, what Riley, I think is her name. I can't remember, but she has the words help me scrawled across her belly. And I just, something about that image resonated so strongly that I just kind of broke. I, I stayed broken for quite a while. I, it took about a year to come out of severe depression. And by that point, I was 16 and some change. I got slowly better, but I had sort of moved from the fire to the frying pan because I went from living with my mother to living with my father. So I, I thought I was moving from my mother's home an unsafe space to my father's home, a safe space. And I was just wrong. And so in a lot of ways, my more acute symptoms settled down, you know, like I I came out of depression, I was able to go to school, I was able to go to community college, I was able to hold multiple jobs down. Like I was by all metrics, like a functioning young person. But I was also just very miserable, isolated. I wasn't able to make many friends during the like the young, like the late teens, early twenties, when you're supposed to be just sort of like fucking around with life. I was working three jobs and going to school because that was what I was told I needed to do, like to feel safe, um, to be productive. Mm -hmm. So, and then I left my father's house when I was eight months pregnant And I pretty much don't have panic attacks now. I mean, occasionally I do, you know, I get nervous like anybody gets nervous or I get anxious like anybody gets anxious, but it's quite a rarity now for me to have like sit on the floor, rocking back and forth, sobbing so hard I can't breathe panic attack. Whereas Mm -hmm. those used to be, you know, once a day sort of occurrences or or multi-day when I was younger multiples during a day. So staying with your dad, I know you've described his behavior as emotional incest. Can you describe what that is for people? Sure. So when I was going through like my healing journey, dealing with PPD and trying to sort of better understand what had happened to me, I had no idea what emotional incest was. And I didn't know what it was until I was, I was watching one of those terrible documentaries on cults. I can't remember which one it was, but I was watching one of them and a former cult member had come forward and she was discussing what had happened to her. And she was discussing how her father figure had treated her like a confidant, but also had exposed her to sexual information and sexual ideas in a way that your parents just aren't supposed to. And the therapist who they were speaking with said this, your, your father was basically treating you like a wife and that's emotional incest. And it hit me. Like I just had to sit down. I had to stop the TV and just sort of sit down on the floor because it resonated so deeply And I had no idea it was a thing because when you hear, you know, incest, you assume actual sexual abuse. 
And one of the things that's been so important to me throughout all of this is like, I don't ever want to indicate that what happened to me was bigger than what it was. It was big enough to be awful, but it, it wasn't certain things. And so the idea of claiming any kind of sexual abuse felt deeply, really wrong. But this idea of emotional abuse was accurate. My dad has been making sexual jokes in my presence since before puberty. My dad would routinely laugh about the amount of porn that was on his computer and tease with us that when he dies, like this is the hard drive to not look at, to just throw away. You know, he, when I first moved in with him, he regularly frequented strip clubs and would tell me about it after the fact in detail that I really didn't need to know about. I really didn't need to know he was at a strip club to begin with. I was 15. And so that at the time added to that feeling of importance, you know, like, look at me, I am so mature that my dad feels like he can joke with me. Like I'm one of the guys he can laugh at me. Like I am his confidant. I have his best friend, you know, but in retrospect, the lack of privacy and the lack of boundaries was just so wild. I mean, the first time when I started to become serious with my now husband, which was quite a long time, we've been together for just about, yeah, for 20 years at this point. When I started to get serious with him, I came home one day to find one of those little bullet vibrators and packaging on my bed. Only two people live in this house, right? Me and my dad. So it's no joke. Like, I don't have to guess where it came from. And the idea was, you know, he didn't want me to get pregnant. He didn't want me to do things too fast. So instead of having a conversation with me, like a well-adjusted person might, um, he just gifted me with this vibrator, which is just strange and uncomfortable. Mm. And I have had therapists confirm that it wasn't cool because I had to check. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is that thing of, well, this is happening. Is this normal? Because you, you, you lose all sense of what's, what's acceptable, don't you? And you, you don't even know where the boundaries should be in the end because it's so far away from where it should be. Yes. It's a, it's a very surreal experience that I'm sure a lot of your listeners can commiserate with, can identify with trying to find what is normal. And as you find what is normal, having to then reevaluate all of the not normal that you have survived through, mm. because every time you find, every time you find, at least for me, every time I realize that normal is just like a hair healthier than I thought it was possible to be in life, then I'm forced to at least briefly reconsider the past and realize it was just a touch less healthy than I originally thought that it was. It's this perpetual cycle of making peace and finding sadness all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and it's like you say, there's so much going on for so many people. And for you, there was so much going on, but almost, yeah, at a level where you think it's acceptable, but none of it's acceptable. (laughs) You know, like it's not until later where you look back and go, oh, my gosh, you know, there was a lot of stuff happening. But because it's just there all the time, it does become your normal and it does become acceptable and little things will kind of hit above the radar and you'll go oh that's not acceptable but there was so much stuff there that was not acceptable yeah but you just can't see that right I know you went no contact with your mum at 19 years old Mm -hmm. and that's a huge decision for anybody at 19 nobody wants to do that we don't want to go no contact with our family so how did you come to that decision and what was the the fallout from that? I I didn't really make that decision permanently until a bit later. It was never really my intention. When I left home at 15, it wasn't my intention to have things escalate to a point where no contact would be possible or it would be necessary. I did try a few times between 15 and 19 to reconcile. And I tried once or twice after that to reconcile. The, the problem was that it wasn't enough for my mom and her family to simply pretend the past didn't happen. That's not the healthiest thing to do, but I, I actually would have been okay with that. And I tried to be very open with the fact that if we just want to start fresh and assume that, you know, my stepfather is dead, you have moved on, let's just start over. Like, I, I think we could have found a tenuous piece, but it was never possible because there was always this insistence for me to apologize again and again for my part in things, for me to absolve my mother again and again. And I would try each time we would get together, I would attempt some version of what was being asked of me, hoping that it would be the last time. And then we could just have a relationship again. And I would very quickly just devolve mentally. I would become that scared, lost little person who left at 15 in the first place. And to my father's credit, because I was living with him and he could see this, he's kind of put his foot down and 
made me really look at what was happening. And at 19, I was dating my now partner and, and he backed my dad up because it was just completely obvious that I wasn't able mentally or emotionally to handle a relationship with them based on what I was being asked to do. I've, I've seen her a few times since then. I saw her at my brother's wedding and a few times here and there, but it's not, it's, it's just cordial. And, and now that I have a child, I don't imagine it will ever happen again. She tried to reach out once after he was born and I put a pretty simple boundary on it. That was, she wasn't allowed to share any photography or videos or anything with my brother because he's still in contact with my dad. And it was less than 24 hours before she told me that that was an unacceptable boundary to ask of her. So we parted ways because I'm not comfortable at all with my dad having any kind of information on my child. So that that's that. Yeah. So, so what happened with your brothers? Do you speak to, to the rest of your family? Unfortunately, I don't. My youngest brother. So my stepfather was his father. And when my stepfather died, I had only left the house maybe three months prior and my mom and her family were livid that I refused to come home and help him through hospice. I had been, you know, trained to be the good little girl and I was refusing to come home and take care of this man who had made my life miserable. And they just spewed that hate all over my little brother by the time I saw him and I wasn't really allowed to see him. So by the time I did see him at the funeral, I was a monster to him. And I really can't fault him for that. He is five years younger than I am. He was just a baby. You know, we tried a couple of times to reconcile, but every time he and I started to make inroads on our relationship, my mom and them all pretty much actively made his life hell. So it wasn't worth it for him to have a relationship with me, which sucks, but I, I understand the logic behind it. And I know I'm not the first one to go through it. My other brother, I managed to stay in, t- in touch with him through everything with mom. But when I finally left my dad's house, that was the last straw for him. Mainly because, well, in my in my opinion, because when I left, my dad was relatively unwell. I had been caring for him pretty actively for three or four years beforehand. And my brother was very afraid he was going to have to step in and start doing all of that emotional and physical labor. And basically was just very, very pissed that I would dare to put my mental health and the physical well-being of my unborn child. Because at that point, dad was starting to try to get physically aggressive. And so I don't want to be no contact with him. You know, I, I would love for him to reach out and say, hey, I was... I was being a jackass, my bad, let's try again. But I think the only other person out there more stubborn than myself may very well be my brother. So I I don't foresee that changing anytime soon. Wow, it's a lot, isn't it, to have no contact with everybody in your family. At what point did you realize that you were suffering with complex trauma? Getting PPD was in a very perverse way, probably the best thing that could have happened to me because 
it forced me to deal with my mental health in a way that I don't think I ever would have found the will to do. I think I would have just continued to kind of like shove it back in the box and pretend it didn't happen and continue on with life. But PPD is like a whole different kind of hell. It is this, at least for me, it's just this endless nothing. Like I would have so much rather have preferred to have felt depression, to have felt anxiety, to have felt anything. This was just numb as far as you can see, as far as you can touch. And the only way to get a handle on it was kind of peel everything back. And I learned very quickly that the reason my PPD was so miserable is because of all the trauma that I had gone through. So I couldn't really manage my PPD until I started looking at the trauma. And then that's when I started to kind of unravel it all and realize just how much I had gone through and just how many, as you said earlier, little things that just kind of build as opposed to one catastrophe. And and that's how I came to understand, well, this this is complex PTSD, not not just PTSD of say like the birth trauma. Mm. Yeah. It's just it's just so many things, isn't it? When you've got a newborn and you've got postpartum depression and you're then dealing with complex trauma. I mean, it's just so much to deal with. How did you even step through that first year? My shrink gave me a piece of advice that I I still use to this day when I'm feeling very uncertain of things. And it was, at the time, it was just try to walk in the direction of not awful. Because at the time, I couldn't feel joy or I couldn't feel anything that wasn't awful. Everything felt awful, right? I was either crying or I was enraged or I was crying about the fact that I was enraged, you know, like it was, it was just miserable all around. And the idea of trying to find happiness seemed so absurd. So she compromised and she said, just walk in the direction of what doesn't hurt or of what's not awful. And so I tried to get back to as basic as possible. I tried to remember what did I like to do as a child before everything went wrong or what, what used to make me feel cozy. And for me, as hilarious as it is, it's doing laundry. I fucking hate doing laundry, but it is something that I used to do with my grandmother religiously she loved doing laundry. Oh my goodness. You put this woman in front of a washer dryer and she was with a <laughs> romance novel and she was set. She loved it. She used to get mad at me when I did the laundry because she wanted to do the laundry. <laughs> and so I started there. So I just, and, and I, I built my day around the laundry as insane as that sounds. And that ritual that that thing to anchor my day that was the start because then it was okay I only have to survive the next hour and a half and then I'm gonna go move the laundry I only have to survive the next 45 minutes and then I'm gonna go hang the laundry and and so 
it let me divvy my days up into these itty bitty little chunks because the idea of surviving a whole year was the idea of surviving a whole week or a whole day just seemed completely undoable but i could i could survive a wash cycle that i could do and 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 so i built it from there i started making the coffee first thing in the morning because i love co- i'm drinking it right now i started watering my plants as as often as they would let me without dying i i started getting out in the sun every day and strapping my child to me and we would go walk along the highway and so i just very very slowly found these little things that didn't hurt and then eventually like a year and some change later i was i i was having lengths of time of not hurt often enough that then the idea of what might feel good started to be envisionable and now my kid is four and a half which is fucking terrifying and now most days are what might feel good to do today some days i still don't know because you know trauma hangs around forever and some days i can't because i have a four and a half year old and he doesn't give a shit about what might feel good to me but (laughs) but still like now i'm able i i am well enough that most days i'm able to come at it from a space of what would I like to do today out of the things I need to do? Not how can I escape the things I don't want to do today, Mm. which is where I was to begin with. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible advice, actually, because people listening to this podcast, so many of them can be in that exact space of, you know, where do I even start? And it's a beautiful, I haven't actually heard it described that way. So Thank you for that incredible advice. I think it's it's very valuable. So what is life like as a mum now? Well, exhausting, but in a good way mostly. So my child is non-speaking and neurodiverse. He's autistic. So life is one adventure after the other. Like, like you were saying earlier, he's not a big fan of sleep. We've actually been up since three this morning. That's pretty normal for us. We won't be asleep until nine or so tonight. So I'm tired a lot, (laughs) but it's good. It's a tired of my own choosing, which is new and lovely, you know, to be able to say I'm tired because I picked this life is nice as opposed to I'm tired because somebody else is demanding things of me. I mean, I guess it's because he's demanding things of me, but I chose that. So it's okay. I am a stay at home parent, which is a bit hilarious given it's kind of what I was raised and bred to do. And I thought for sure that I would very much balk at it. I had my money pegged that, you know, when he reached a year or two, I would just be very, very itching to get out into the world again. But I found a lot of solace in the quiet repetitive days and then COVID hit right so nobody was doing anything anyway because he was he was born in 2019 so he was born about a year before all of that happened so I don't know where I would have gone to work anyway but it's it's a quiet little life for the most part which which is what I really always wanted 
I never wanted to travel very much. I never wanted to be in the spotlight very much. I never wanted any of those grand big dreams that a lot of kids have. You know, I'll be a singer, I'll be an astronaut, I'll be a dancer. I I I always just wanted a quiet little life where no one was yelling at me. And now I have that and I am incredibly thankful that I do. And my partner has been with me through it all, mm. which is kind of amazing considering you know, I started out as a cisgender woman and I am a queer trans mask person. So it, it's a, it's a lovely life. I am incredibly fortunate. Yeah. It's, it's, it's beautiful that you've got to this point. Let's talk about identity for a moment, because I know that you've even changed your name since your previous life. What has it been like finding your own true identity after being really your parents' scapegoat for so many years? It's It's been strange. And thank you for the question, because that's sort of where the book was born from, is trying to make sense of all of that. At first, I thought my identity was going to be mom. that, And that's really what I latched onto when I went no contact with dad. It was like, okay, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be any of that. Now I'm just going to be mom. And that's when we focus on. And then none of the emotional resonance that's supposed to come with being a mom came, right? Like the universe was like, well, in namesake, you get to be mom, but you're not going to feel any of those good feelings. And that sort of made me reconsider, what am I? What if If I have a child and I can't even really feel like I can own the moniker mom. Like, what does that make me? And I, I really held on to my strengths advice for that because, okay, so being a mom doesn't feel good. What feels good? I mean, I'm still a mom, right? Like I'm still going to do the things. I'm going to make sure my child is safe and happy and healthy and all those things. But if I can't, if I can't identify with that, what can I identify with? And I found that at first I, it it was aesthetic things, right? Like I cut my hair, I dyed my hair, I changed the, what I wore. And then it just sort of built slowly in terms of gender, right? Like being a mom going through birth is the, like, in many ways, it's like the pinnacle of femininity, you know, like, or that's what society tells us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like my body had rejected the entire experience. And so I started to question like, well, okay, then what am I? And without anybody telling me what I needed to be or what I didn't need to be, it felt quite safe to experiment and to just walk in the direction of whatever felt good. And at first that was non-binary. And then now it's trans mask. And I am kind of delighted to say that I don't know what it'll be in five years and, and that, that that's okay. Because there was definitely a time where it would not have been okay, but it is. And whether that is, I go further in the masculine direction or I wake up tomorrow and I was like, you know what? I really miss heels and lipstick. I am cis once more. Like I have no idea. And, and I think that's okay. And that it is okay is a daily reminder that I'm in a safe space and as opposed to where I was before. Yeah, absolutely. And what a relief, what a relief to wake up every day and just be, 
whoever you are, yeah. you know, just be whoever you yeah. are because, yeah. I mean, that's everything, isn't it? Just that freedom. Yeah. It is. And, and, and having a partner that's been there through all of that, I mean, what an amazing person too because it's been yeah. a lot for a lot for that person as well on that journey. Yes, very much so. Um, I am, I don't use the word blessed very often because I think it comes from a really hollow place a lot of the times, but I am beyond blessed to have them in my life. I, I fell in love with him at 14 and we became serious at 19. I turned 40 in November and we've been together the entire time. It's, it, it's wild and it's lovely. And I, I have no idea what happened. It was like mm-hmm. the one, the one kindness the universe extended in the midst of all of the bullshit of my childhood. Yeah. What do you think has been the hardest part of, of getting through this healing journey? I think the hardest part I think has been coming to grips with what it means for my kid. You know, it's one thing for me to say, I'm not going to see any of my biological family anymore. But it is another thing to say, my child is never going to know their biological family outside of, you know, their immediate family. Um, I mean, my partner's family is pretty solid, so he'll have extended family. But I have actively cut off, you know, a whole bunch of people that he'll never know. Now, if when he's older, he really feels strongly about meeting them, I'm not going to stop him. But it does mean that for all of his youth, he won't have that. And and I do worry sometimes because, you know, my grandmother, she was, I mean, I miss her every day. She's been dead five years now and I still miss her every day. And she was a terrible mom, but I miss her every day. And I do wonder sometimes, you know, my dad was a terrible dad. Would he have been a good grandpa? Mm. Or my mom was a terrible mom, but would she have been a good grandma? And I, I know that I am not the one that took those privileges away, right? Like kids don't ever want to go no contact, but he won't ever have that relationship with either of them because I've chosen that it's not safe. And I I do, I do struggle with that from time to time. Because how how can you know, right? Like you have to, you have to take your best guess mm. with things like that. So that's, and so that, that's probably been the hardest in turn, just, just trying to figure out what, how can I build community for him in a new way since I've been forced to remove the automatic community like from his life? Yeah, a hundred percent. But in the end, you know, it is what you deem to be the safest thing for your child and what your intuition tells you is the best thing. And so that's what you have to go with, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's sad. It's so sad, but you know, you have, you have to make those hard decisions. You have to make those hard decisions. If you could go back to your 15 year old self, your 16 year old self, what would you tell her? What what advice would you give her? You know, the gut reaction is don't move in with your dad, right? But I I actually don't think I would say that because 
if my living arrangement hadn't been in what it had been, then my grandmother never would have come to live with us. And I, I really valued that time with her. I was her surrogate daughter in a lot of ways, and she was my surrogate mom in a lot of ways. And if I had gone no contact with my father earlier, I wouldn't have had access to that relationship. But I, I think, I think what I would tell her is that your savior is not your schoolwork. Your savior is not your job. Because I, I was maniacal about straight A's. I thought for sure that that was my ticket out to safety, and it, it was a, it was a ticket to a lot of student debt and. <laughs> to a degree that I loved getting, but isn't super helpful in the world. MFAs, creative writing, that that's not how you make money for the most part. I think I would tell her instead to try to focus on building up found family. Like don't, don't let yourself get isolated Mm. the way that I did reach out, make friends in college, make friends in high school, make friends at work. If that's what you have to do, because it's, it's really, really hard to build community at 40. It's, it's, it's really difficult to make friends as an adult in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I hear a hundred percent. And I know you said earlier that you feel that you have had a lot of privilege and that it's almost like you're making what's happened to you quite small you know, it's like not that Mm -hmm. big. And so I shouldn't really feel like I've been through very much. I mean, having sat here and listened to your story, I think you've been through a hell of a lot, like a hell of a lot. And I just wanted to say to people listening, because I think that often we feel that we shouldn't ask for help because we feel that what's happening to us isn't that big, you know, and I was even Mm -hmm. speaking to somebody the other day. I said, well, why don't you go and and chat to somebody about it? And it's like, well, what would I say? It's not like a big deal. It's like, but it is a big deal because it's actually upsetting you, right? Yeah. It's it's something. So it can be the tiniest thing, but still go and ask for help. And I can tell you, having heard your story, what you've been through is not a tiny thing. It's not a small thing. It's it's a it's a lot that you've been through and it doesn't matter if you live in the most expensive house in the town you can still be having a terrible terrible life because of the people that are in it so I just I just want to make sure that none of us are minimizing what's happening to us and understanding that we should always ask for help and and that's it's so important that we know that absolutely yes thank you for saying that it's incredibly important so scotty your memoir how i learned to love you it's your truth it's your story what would you like people to know about your book well in terms of availability it's everywhere if you are an online shopper i always recommend people go to bookshop.org because that's helping out independent um, bookstores, which is always a wonderful thing to do. But, you know, for better or worse, I'm an Amazon shopper, just like the next person. So if that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do. Right now, it is available in paperback, and it's available um, on Kindle. I am hoping that sometimes next year, I can put out an audiobook because we I, I want it to be as accessible as possible. And I, I just hope that for those who read it, it's 
it validates what you were just discussing. This idea that pain is pain and it doesn't matter if the person next to you has a bigger pain than you have. You you are still in pain and you are worthy of healing. Absolutely. And you said it beautifully there. I'll put links to Scardi's book in the show notes so that you can easily find it. It's an important story for anybody healing from childhood trauma. So please do order yourself a copy. Scardi, I think you're incredible. Like I just think that everything you've been through, the the childhood, but then that couple of first couple of years of postpartum depression and everything, we need voices like yours in the world. And so when you put a book out with all of that in it, it's so incredibly helpful for people and so valuable for people to be able to connect in with all of that stuff for themselves. So thank you so much for writing your book and sharing your story with us and for sharing with us today. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be on. I'm glad we were able to find a time to make it happen. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.